This podcast series is based on a book called Beyond Reasonable Greed, Why Sustainable Business is a Much Better Idea by Wayne Visser and Clem Sumter, read by myself, Wayne Visser. Chapter 6. Sustainable Commerce, Growing Tusks and a Trunk So much for the background on sustainability and our earlier introduction to the metaphor of the lion and the elephant. In this chapter, we start going beyond the why to the how of sustainable business. We explore seven critical dimensions in which shape-shifting is needed in order to create sustainable companies. These are values, vision, work, governance, relationships, communication, and services. So if you're a lion, take a deep breath and don't pull your whiskers out. Values. It's in his kiss. Values are exactly what they say they are, a reflection of the things we value. They are not motherhood and apple pie statements in annual reports or candy floss principles framed on the boardroom wall. If you want to know what values a lion lives by, the answer lies not in his well-groomed mane or his charming smile. As the rock and roll classic goes, it's in his kiss. In other words, companies' values are betrayed by their actions, not their words, or their spin doctor's marketing material. And an unreformed lion will never be a convincing elephant, no matter how real his mask looks or how much grey makeup he applies. It is only by behaving like an elephant, not by looking like one, that companies start to shapeshift. One of us, Clem Sunter, watched a pride of lions at a waterhole in a Namibian game park as they refused to allow any other animal near it. The day was extremely hot, the animals were getting thirsty and tired. It was clear that the lion's intention was to weaken their potential prey to the point that they were much easier to catch later on. Perfectly logical for a predator, but not the behavior of an elephant. It occurred to us that this scene perfectly mirrored the principle of exclusion widely prevalent in today's economies. As farmers merge and expand their farms to compete in current world markets, no longer being afforded the protection by the state that they used to have, so less land is available for smaller farmers. Of course, this exclusionary principle applies in any field where large companies are gobbling up the market by trading on their economies of scale. The end result is a small number of asset owners surrounded by a property-deprived, unemployed, highly resentful proletariat. Have you heard that analysis before? It came straight out of Karl Marx, whose ideology these days is politically incorrect to espouse. While the previous statement would suggest that economies should become more inclusive to avoid a Marxist revolution, a lot of companies still embody values of exclusion. Why on earth have competition? Profit maximization rests on domination and monopoly control. Hence, alive and well in a variety of mahogany rows are the principles of self-preservation, paranoid secrecy, cold-blooded rationality, materialistic greed, egotistical empire-building, distrustful stakeholder relationships, organized pack-hunting, strict don't-step-out-of-the-line hierarchies, 
and inequitable class and gender divisions. This may sound overly like a Disney caricature of the evil antagonist, but if you step back and think about the corporate environment and the way in which managers behave and acquisitions happen, it starts to feel uncomfortably true. Don't get us wrong, we're not saying that business is the root of all evil or that business people are devils in disguise. We are part of the scene ourselves. What we are saying is that the economy and business have adopted the lion persona so completely that the life of hunger and hunting and killing has come to feel perfectly natural. You see, the lion is not cruel. It is just being what it is, a carnivore. The difference is that business is not genetically programmed to be a predator. Neither are the people who make up companies. Of course, many pension funds and other investors argue that, given the current rules of the game, they want their investments to behave like carnivores, because that way they get the best returns. They would be horrified if a CEO got up at an annual general meeting and announced that he was going to give half the growth in earnings towards fighting the war against HIV and AIDS. Which is the reason that we made the point about multi-level shape-shifting. A lonely elephant has little if no chance of beating the lions, especially if the odds are stacked against her. Though you will see later on in this uh, chapter that we quote a Harvard study which claims the elephants can be victorious in the financial realm as well as in all others if the playing field is level. The tragedy is that most people spend their childhood being taught to become elephants, to be kind, considerate, gentle, generous, trusting, fair, friendly, selfless and cooperative. Then they get snatched away from their supportive family environment and find themselves in the clutches of a more ruthless master, the economy, the company, the boss, the bank. Very quickly they unlearn their homemade values. They are taught to distrust their caring instincts and to forsake their former beliefs as feeble naivety. They are shown how dangerous and unfriendly the world is, full of hungry competitors and harsh conditions. They are bullied into getting tough in order to survive. In fact, we believe that most people, even people like General Electric's Neutron Jack, whom we quoted earlier, are elephants at heart. One thing Jack Welch did, which you simply don't see from other CEOs, was to handwrite thank you notes to his employees when he thought they'd done something special. Most CEOs only communicate with staff lower down if they're in for a roasting. Sadly, the majority of management take off their elephant masks as they leave home in the morning and put on their lion masks. It may not feel natural or comfortable, but it is expected. When in lion country, pretend to be a lion, or you may get spotted and end up as someone else's lunch. Keeping up our feline facade is only possible because we find ways to dissociate ourselves from our harmful actions. We trick ourselves into thinking that decisions, like sacking people in the interests of efficiency, refusing a charity request or killing off a piece of nature, are not personal. We rationalize that we are pawns on the checkerboard of the economy, the international markets, the shareholders, the budget, the performance appraisal form, or the corporate bonus system. Hence, while dishing out pain to others, we go on to accept a healthy salary increase and additional perks. 
Then we feed ourselves on another course of equally self-serving illusions, like that managers are more valuable than the workers, like that only those who create the wealth should share in the spoils, and like that there have to be winners and losers. And if there were no material incentives, who would work? Elephant companies do not allow their people to hide behind convenient corporate masks. They do not profess values that they do not believe in or practice. Instead, they make it uncomfortable to think or act like a lion. Not by fuzzy value statements or by throwing the rule book at transgressors. Instead, they use two old-fashioned tried and tested techniques, leading by example and applying collective moral pressure. Take America's popular ice cream chain, Ben and Jerry's, for example. Since equity in the workplace was one of their fundamental values, the founders insisted on a top-to-bottom salary ratio of 7 to 1. Although the arrival of a new CEO in 1995 pushed up that ratio to 14 to 1, this was still commendably egalitarian compared with the rest of corporate America where CEOs were earning on average 85 times more than their employees. Today, it's more than 300 times. Staff diversity was another value, but not just on paper. By the mid-1990s, the number of minorities employed at Ben & Jerry's was 3%, almost double the 1.8% that made up the Vermont population. 3% of professionals and managers were also from minority groups, including the CEO. The percentage of women in senior and professional positions was 40%, and the company paid senior women 37.5% more than the national average. Giving is another instance in which Ben & Jerry's put their money where their values are. In one year, they committed as much as 7.5% of pre-tax profits in donations to charity, compared with around 1% for the U.S. food and manufacturing sector as a whole. Seeking to live up to their social responsibility values, Ben & Jerry's have also invited a succession of social responsibility experts over the years to publish an independent commentary on the company's social performance. Another great example of elephant values in action is Brazil's largest marine and food processing machine manufacturer, Semco. Under the innovative leadership of company president Ricardo Semler, Semco lives and breathes three fundamental values, democracy, shared prosperity, and transparency. These values are based on the notion of giving employees control over their own lives, we hire adults, says Semler in his autobiography called Maverick, and then we treat them like adults. Putting these values into practice has resulted in some serious corporate shape-shifting. For starters, the councillors, equivalent to what lion companies call executive directors, take it in six-month turns to act as CEO in cycles that overlap rather than coincide with budgetary cycles. Associates, who are lower-level employees, often earn more than coordinators, the managers, or partners, the divisional heads, and can increase their recognition and rewards without having to be part of line management. All Semco employees attend classes to learn how to read and understand the numbers, and each and every one receives the accounts for their division each month. 
Staff are also given access on request to any other company information, including everyone else's salaries. If people are embarrassed by their salaries, reasons similar, that probably means they aren't earning them. Semco has a similar open house attitude to information leakage into the market. After all, why worry about yesterday's news? Semco has done away with hourly pay and now everyone gets a monthly salary, which they are allowed to participate in setting themselves. Semco distributes a half-yearly salary market survey and says, figure out where you stand on this thing. You know what you do, you know what everyone else in the company makes, and you know what you need, and you know what's fair. Come back on Monday and tell us what to pay you. Those that belong to unions have their salaries negotiated collectively. Furthermore, each division in Semco has a separate profit-sharing program. Twice a year, they put aside 23% of the after-tax profit on each division and decide, by simply majority vote, what to do with it. In most units, the decision has ended up being one of equal distribution among all the workers in the division. Hence, the person who sweeps the floor gets as much as the division's partner. Of course, corporate values seldom exist in isolation from broader cultural values. It is hardly surprising that modern capitalist enterprises display the values of Leo when the Western culture that produced them embodies such a conquering ethic. For this very reason, non-Western cultures may be on the brink of a renaissance, as their more elephant-orientated values become increasingly valuable. This contrast is nowhere more pronounced than between the so-called Western or Northern countries and those of the South or East. For example, the culture of the West or the North is highly focused on individual performance and rewards hierarchical authority and rational decision-making, while the East or South's emphasis is more about social harmony and cohesion, participative decision-making, creative expression, and motivation. The American dream of rags to riches through individual hard work and personal achievement is but one symbol of the West or North's lion values. In business, most of us operate under these values every day, so they will not be explored further. But consider the alternatives. In Japanese culture, there is the concept of wa, which stresses group harmony and social cohesion, and ringi, meaning root-binding, which describes a bottom-up approach to decision-making. This outlook on life translates into business practices that value consensus and unity of purpose, service and loyalty to a larger whole, whether that be the country, the company or the world, and cooperation between individuals and groups in the workplace. An objection may be here that we praise Japan to the skies for these values in the 1970s and 1980s as they conquered the world's markets with their zero-defect cars, TVs, video cassette recorders and Walkmans. Then the wheels came off in the 1990s and they're still off. But one shouldn't confuse the good characteristics we are talking about with the deficiencies that have caused the Japanese economy to crash. An inflexible attitude towards structural changes and an emphasis on copycatting Western technology rather than doing original research and development. In Africa, there is a widespread value of Ubuntu, 
which is based on the proverb meaning a person becomes human through other people. Zimbabwean business leader and author Lovemore Mbige speaks of emancipating the spirit of Ubuntu by building a culture based on tolerance, respect, human dignity and solidarity. Similarly, South African executive Rule Kosa describes Ubuntu as the philosophy of I am because you are, you are because we are. It is a concept, he says, which brings to the fore images of supportiveness, cooperation and solidarity, that is, communalism. According to Mbigi, Ubuntu is supported by a host of related sociocultural ideas from the African heritage, such as Ilima, a cooperative effort in ploughing, Inkuina, hunting as a team, and Ukudla, sharing food. Similarly, there's their practice of Ukusisa, or cows never die. According to this principle, when a poor person in the community is encountered, the dignity of that person is protected by someone who is better endowed with cattle wealth, communicating the need for one of his or her cows to be cared for. This transaction in turn provides the destitute member with milk and wealth in the form of one or two calves, after which the original cow is borrowed back. The practical application of such elephant-friendly values in business is a golden thread that runs throughout the remainder of this chapter.